Play Obsession, a podcast about life and jiu-jitsu, where each week we'll be taking a look at the latest competition scene results, as well as interviews and roundtable discussions about the jiu-jitsu lifestyle and self-defense. Don't forget to go to workplayobsession.blogspot.com for in-depth news and analysis, as well as bonus training techniques. Welcome back to another episode. I'm really glad that you downloaded this episode today because I truly feel that uh, some of the things I've got lined up for discussion today will enlighten uh, many of the listeners out there. This episode uh, is all about combatives, self-defense, and the importance of jiu-jitsu with regards to military and law enforcement training and operations. There's a common debate in the jiu-jitsu community excuse me, amongst the keyboard warriors out there as to what does and what does not work in a street fight and which martial art or academy is the best for self-defense. Well, today I'm joined by a Black Belt Magazine Hall of Famer, former Marine, retired Army Ranger, creative of the, creator of the United States Army Modern Combatives Doctrine, Mr. Matt Larson. Now, I cut the list short uh, because your accomplishments truly go on and on, and, I, and no introduction I can do uh, will do you justice. Okay. So, so good morning. Morning. Uh, um, listeners out there, when you have the opportunity, please, please Google Matt Larson. Uh, just read his bio, and, and you'll understand why I'm so honored to have him here on the show today. Uh, Matt, first, thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Uh, and thank you for being here today. Uh, say hello to the listeners and uh, just give us some of the highlights of your career that I haven't hit and uh, specifically some of the places where you've trained and some of the, the styles of martial arts that, you, that you've trained in. Oh, hello, everyone. Um, just a rough background. I, I was that tough guy who thought he was tough in high school, dropped out, joined the Marines. My first duty station was Tokyo, so I trained karate and judo. And then I bummed around the Middle East, or I'm sorry, the Eastern uh, world for a while. I trained in Thailand and Korea and the Philippines. All the traditional martial arts that were available at the time. And, and eventually, because of shooting actually, I started getting more involved in the competitive uh, martial arts. So that led me uh, first to judo and then uh, and, uh, kickboxing and, and Muay Thai and whatnot. <clears throat> Pardon me. And then into... Um, eventually Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu whenever the UFC came along. Um, and and the reason I say because of shooting is it's because the lessons that I was learning as a as a soldier, I was by that time I was in the Ranger Regiment, uh, the lessons were that these competitive forms drove the training to a higher level. Okay, I got you. That, that was going to be my question, so yeah. you, you cut me off there. So great. That's perfect. Um, and and I'm, I'm going to speed you up a little bit uh, and get right into... Um, uh, the military combatives program that we know that the, 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 that you built and put together and is flourishing right now. Um, let's go back to what flaws did you see in the military combatives program at the time that caused you to revamp the structure for the guys that you were uh, training? Well, the story is that uh, uh, General McChrystal, Stan McChrystal, some of y'all may remember him, he was our battalion commander, and he ordered us to do combatives training. So we did what anybody else would have done. We busted out the, the field manual and started doing what was what was uh, done, or what was in there. and I, I always thought three sessions of pugil sticks and basic training was all I needed to be, a, to be the ultimate warrior yeah. out on the battlefield. You know, I was, I was that guy. I went to Marine Corps basic training. I was the toughest guy in the world at that point, um, as far as I knew. But, uh, you know, live and learn. But, uh, but, you know, what ended up happening was we went back to him almost immediately and said, look, sir, this is kind of a waste of time. Right. And, and it was the same... 
you know, legacy combatives programs that, that actually goes all the way back to World War II and, and before that even. And, and, um, and we told him it was a waste of time because it really was. Right. And, and it wasn't that the techniques were bad, but it was really that the training method was bad. And imagine, I used to always ask everybody, why would anybody be good at that stuff? And nobody was. In fact, whenever it came time to do any combatives training in that era, what happened is they would always go to somebody who learned in the civilian world uh-huh. and did whatever style of karate or judo or something. And then those people would inevitably try to implement that training method from their civilian martial art, and it wouldn't fit. Right. And, and so what I mean by that is, imagine every boxing gym in the world teaches striking the same way. First you come in and learn some footwork, then you learn the jab, then you throw the jab for a month. After a month or so, you, you might learn the cross. And so it takes several months before you get to the and point that's where a few, that's a few lessons a week, not that's right. just one, four one day five, a week. Four or five days a week. Yeah. You know, my, my old boxing coach told me on my first day, look, if you're not going to come here four days a week, don't come one. Yeah. So, um, and, and then they try to transplant that training method, whatever it happens to be, into, the, into a unit, and then it, it absolutely doesn't fit. You know, it's square pegs and round holes. So right. It's got nothing to do with the, the technique or little to do with the technique. Because um, I still box the same way, I still I, I still teach the same techniques. I just do them in a different training method. You know. Okay. So what what uh, basic designs did you implement to the program, or do you emphasize in the program? And then what do you, I'll say, shy away from, or stay away from, or don't uh, implement into the program, or, or to a lesser degree implement into the program? Well, so I think the major lessons are. Um, First, that you, your approach has to be cultural. And I okay. know that sounds crazy to most people, but but imagine martial arts have a culture, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to structure the culture of what you're teaching such that it it integrates within the organization you're trying to think. So you know, I've trained a whole bunch of different kinds of organizations, all right. the way from police forces, uh, different you know special operations type uh, small units, as well as the whole army. So. Each of those takes a different approach. So, for example, the Army program was designed to integrate within PT right? because soldiers do PT every day. So that's the natural fit to create a bunch of drills, create a bunch of things that you can do. Okay, so today we're going for a run. We're going to do sit-ups. We're going to do push-ups. We're going to do drill four. And now, next thing you know, you can expect everybody to get better at it. Right. So that that note that this doesn't talk about, I'm not talking about technique at all because, in my opinion, the technique is, is less important. Right. Yeah. So it's a culture. Yep. It's a good point. I think, uh, do you see uh, a lot of programs, as you travel, do you see that a lot of programs out there still haven't picked up on this concept and they're still doing things the their traditional, non-effective way? Uh, yeah, I think that almost every martial, almost every combatives program <clears throat> has this in common. The commander who wants combatives, who doesn't really know what, he's, what he wants, finds time on the training calendar. And, and whatever time it is, it's a finite amount. And, right. then he, and then he finds somebody who's a martial arts guy or something to, to fill the time. And it doesn't matter if this person's like the holder of the Red Sash and Five Animal Kung Fu or, you know, just won the UFC. Um, because what he does is try to fill that time with useful techniques designed around the tactical niche that he thinks these people will right. need. Right. And, and the problem with that is... Imagine if I if I was to say, okay, we're going to round up all the women who work in Company A, and we're going to give them a rape prevention class this Saturday. It's going to be eight hours. We would have exactly that, right? Here's the time on the training calendar. Yep. Here's the tactical niche, and and then whatever te- what and just as that seems like the thing to do, 
the results will be predictable, right? They'll come in and train. It'll be fun. They'll halfway learn the techniques. Six months later, six years later, they will have not done it since that day, and it will be absolutely as if they did not do the training in the yep. first place. No, I agree, and we've seen it. We've seen it on multiple occasions. Yeah. <clears throat> we see it still today with the training that we run through where you had a guy come through for, even if it was a week, but then he comes back three or four months later, and it's like he had never trained before. So, uh, I'll give the example. You know, Imagine whenever Mieda was teaching the first Gracies, what did he teach them that mattered? Because, because it wasn't the techniques, right? What he taught them that mattered was two things. The first one was that it was fun. Yeah. If they didn't enjoy doing it, they wouldn't have kept doing it, and the whole world of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu wouldn't exist. So that was the first lesson. The second lesson was the training method of live ground grappling. So everything in, in the Jiu-Jitsu world comes from those two lessons, because what if I teach you a technique and, and you can't make it work? Well, then what's going to happen, because you have live ground grappling, is you're going to start switching on your brain, trying to figure out a better way. Exactly. And the whole jiu-jitsu world is doing that. So that is, you know, at the same time, a bullshit filter for bad technique and a technique generator. And that that, that training method. So that's the real lessons that, yep. that me have taught that mattered. So I, you hit on one thing, because, it's, because it was fun. There's that. And then I'm going to kind of... Uh, parlay that into another story that, that, that you like to tell. And I think it's important for uh, the professionals out there who should build combatives into their program. But you tell the story of what your unit values, you know, and the value they put on training and how you can tell what they value. I, if you can tell that story for listeners, I think it's great for anyone who builds this in as a professional to click in their mind. Yeah, so, so once upon a time, I had the chief of staff of the Army in my, in my gym. And imagine the entourage that comes with them. So I, so I said to the crew, who's the best runner in the group? And they were like, oh, it's easy. You know, Major Long Legs here. He just won the Marine Corps Marathon. It's like, oh, that's great, you know, because I'm a fan of running. So I said, but who's the best shot? And, of course, nobody knew. And I said, well, who's the best fighter? And, of course, nobody knew that either. Yeah, yeah. So I was able to say, so what you're telling me is that this organization values running over shooting and fighting. And, of course, they had to admit to themselves that that was true because they all knew who the better runner was. So, so, so then the next question is why? Because it wasn't a conscious decision. Nobody decided that they were going to value running more. They just did it. And the why is because of what their daily activities are. So, you know, most soldiers fall out in the morning for PT, right face, forward march, take off on a run. Yep. And so we all see who's good at it. We do it collectively. So we all know who's good and we all know who sucks. And so nobody wants to be that guy falling out, and everybody wants to be that rabbit. You know, so the, the culture values running. But, and the reason I use shooting is because it's obviously something we need to be good at. Um, when you go to the range, who knows who does well? Yep. You know, if you don't come back and publish the scores, then nobody does, except for you, the person who pencil whipped your score, and the company clerk, right? Absolutely. So, so the way to make sure that everybody values shooting to publish the scores, make sure that it's got a competitive element. Because now, you know, then we'll all start making fun hey, of you, the people. You want to improve. You don't want <laughs> your right. name at the bottom of that list. That's Absolutely. Right. And then I've been there. I know what it's like on the bottom. Of that that's list. right. <laughs> and so the same thing is true with fighting. And how do you do it with fighting? Well, in the old days, in, in the Rangers, what we used to do is on payday activities, the sergeant major would call guys out and fight. You know, so you know, give me a second squad leader, a third platoon, alpha company, and and then somebody else like that, and have them fight in front of everybody. So in that way. You, you can't survive. You're that, that guy over there running his mouth saying, oh, I'll just shoot you. Well, you can't survive because you're going to get twisted up like a little kid, and you know, yep. like, like somebody's cl closing the bread bag with you. Um, and then 
everybody's going to know that you're just, you know, a pansy. <laughs> so no, I absolutely, I, I love that story um, I, because I see it when you, I've seen you tell it, I think it with two different groups. Yeah. But you, you see the eyes kind of light up or you see the, the people that are like, oh man, that's me. I'm that guy that, you know, they relate to it. Yeah. Like, Maybe I need to, they may not start to train more, but they realize the, the mistake. Well, the you program. know, the main lesson there is that as leaders, we can, we can craft the culture of our organization and we Absolutely. craft it by the by the the demands we put on people the by the activities we require of them you know if if you want to have an organization where everybody knows how to fight there's only one way to do it and that is to create a culture where everybody demands of each other that they are good fighters yeah no that's a that's a great point um, let's talk about talk about training a little bit and, and safety do you have you seen that people commanders uh, shy away from training for fear of injuries or fear of impacting jobs. Well, I, I think it's a, an excuse. Um, and what I mean by that is um, you'd never guess what the number one non-combat-related uh, injury creator was during the entire Iraq war, but it was basketball. Really? Yeah. So I mean, I've, yeah, I've seen a lot of <laughs> basketball and flag football. I, you see a lot of injuries. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so so if, it, if it was really about safety, if it was really about the injuries, then the Army would be banning basketball because yeah. that is the most injurious thing we do. And, this, and the second most injurious is running because we all do it. Right. Uh, but then the next one after that is soccer. So so it's absolutely not because it's dangerous. Yeah. That's just an excuse. So... Um, Another another question that, that's interesting to me is how often do you do you feel that people should train? Uh, I know we know we talk realistic as far as uh, speed and, and, and effort, but uh, full combat uniform or you know uh, belt, clips, vests. Yeah. So I, what what I think on is all various training methods. Each each training method has its strengths and, and its weaknesses, and the and the weakness of that kind of training is it's more dangerous. Mm. So if me and you are rolling, we're wearing helmets and body armor and stuff, then we're much more likely to get hurt than yep. we are. So, so you need to do that, um, and you need to think through how to do it so that you're not, so it's less injurious. But, but how often is often enough such that it informs the rest of your training? So, if I was to say, you know, so we're, consider, uh, most of the, the training in most gyms is live ground grappling, right? Right. So, um, if you're not occasionally going live ground grappling with strikes, well, then you're, your jujitsu is not going to be informed by strikes. You, you know, imagine there was a there was a famous fight um, between um, Armory Batesh and uh, uh, Don Fry, and whenever the when the fight was going down, Armory Batesh, who was world champion at the time, you know, wasn't defending the punches very right. effectively. Well, that's because when you're training to be the world champion of jujitsu, nobody's hitting you. Yeah, right? nobody's nobody's striking. So you have to do some some striking as part of your rolling or else you're not going to be informed. And, and the other way on, on that is imagine, the other lesson on that is imagine um, there was another fight whenever Matt Lindland fought um, uh, Murillo Bustamante. When those two guys fought, uh, Murillo got all the takedowns, right? So that was when Matt Lindland had just come off of being the silver medalist in Greco-Roman. So the idea that the silver medalist got taken down a, yeah. a bunch of times by the regular jiu-jitsu guy it, it, the the lesson is that that the setups that he used in the Olympics were not the setups were that happened in yeah, fighting, right? Fighting and so if Absolutely. you're not if you're not putting your training in context, then you're not training correctly because you're going to have this this problem. You know, you yeah. might have the best takedowns in the world. You might be the the gold medalist, but the guy who's who's doing takedowns off of strikes, he's going to 
take you down. So it, you, you brought up an inter- another interesting point there. You talk about uh, perspective. So something that's really big right now, something I'm interested in hearing your perspective on, leg locks. All right. So strictly talking, uh, self-defense, combat, op- combat operations, police officer on the street, where do toe holds and heel hooks uh, fall into training and preparation? Uh, so <laughs> it's a big topic. The, the, um, I'm interested to hear your opinion. The, the, uh, okay, so let me take it from the perspective of training an organization. Okay. If I'm training an organization, what I'm really training them to do is fight people who don't know very much about fighting. So imagine every fight that ever happened in Iraq, every single one was against a white belt. Yep. So what tactics would you use if you were fighting white belts? Well, that's the tactics that you need to train on Absolutely. if you're training an organization, right? So, so you, you may have an entirely different, you know, real super high-end, you know, technical way to do something that works when these guys are really good that you're fighting, you know. But in the end, if I walk out of this building today and, and something happens where I'm in an altercation, it's not going to be against Lucas Lepre, right? <laughs> That's not going to happen, right? Lucas is a nice guy. Yeah, exactly right. right? Well, A, he will, he'll wear me out, right? <laughs> but, but, but it's not going to be against him. It's going to be against some regular guy. So I'm going to have – my primary thing I need to train for is how to beat regular guys. Yeah. Uh, so if you combine that with the, fa- the, the fact that when you start to attack the legs – it almost always takes you out of the basic, you know, uh, hierarchy of position that we know from jujitsu. And we know that that's a, a, a fairly sound way to A, teach people and B, to be, to win fights, right? Yes. Yes. So if, if I'm, if I'm in side control and I decide to go to the legs, it might work, but it, it also is not the same thing as going to the knee and the belly or the mount or some, some, something that sticks with my basic Absolutely. strategy. So, so that's what I would say is, you know, like in, if, uh, there's also the factor that it's more dangerous, so you have more injuries. Like, so imagine heel hooks are a fabulous technique, right? But if you teach them to white belts, they will all kill each other with them because, <laughs> because they're not, uh, you know, haven't, haven't gotten rid of their ego enough so that right. they can tap right. even when it's not painful. So the heel hook isn't painful until your ACL goes. And so therefore you just feel pressure. So you have to be an adult to train on that stuff. So, you know, in, in my way of thinking, I prep people for the fact that leg locks and stuff exist in their yep. basic techniques. You know, but you have to have that understanding. Absolutely. Well, well, I mean, for example, like when you when you when new purple belts go to their first tournament, they often get heel hooked, and the reason they do is because they haven't been rolling with heel hooks until that point. So, so they are very often. So they, you know, somebody will umpa them into a heel hook because they're light in the mount. Mm-hmm. So instead of, um, you know. Instead of locking in their hooks and setting their hips forward so that now they can't be umpud, so if you had gone back and taught them, right. you know, when they were mounting, when they first started, that this is what you do when you mount, then this wouldn't, this weakness would not have happened. And that, I, that's why I bring that question up because I, I, and I've heard it in a seminar before where they say jujitsu is, I'll use the term getting worse because I don't remember the exact phrase, but yeah. getting worse because of the emphasis by some people on leg locks. Well, so so the way I would say that is um, it's not the emphasis on leg locks. You know, it, what it is is the focus on winning jiu-jitsu tournaments. That's a good point. And, and the fact that nobody or that the, the the leaders of the jiu-jitsu world are letting the rules have a, a, a 
having this effect on people. So, so what people do in competitions is purely a product of the, of what the rules are, because uh, people are going to try to win within those rules, right? So, what happens in almost every martial sport is that the, the rules get changed so that it's more crowd appealing right. or safer right. or, you know, so that can have a bad effect. Now, I'll give you an example. So, um, back in the 20s, whenever they were coming up with the rules for competitive sambo, and basic sambo, they don't allow choke. So you can win by, by pin, uh, or you can win by submission, but not by choke. So if you can't choke anybody, why would you take the back? Right? <laughs> and if you can't, if there's no reason to take the back, then why would you learn to defend the back, yeah. right? And so this, this huge hole in that, in that, in generations of sambo guys, um, was that they didn't know how to defend chokes. So, so the rules, are what created that, right? So I mean, imagine this for a second. You know, I'm actually writing a book about this right now about the evolution, evolutionary pressures on martial arts. So imagine if if uh, sambo, which was uh, shares roots with judo and shares roots with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, those all come from the same place. So the guy who one of the main guys in sambo was Oshepkov, and he was of second down in judo, okay. and the Gracies learned from Mieta, who was a, a judo guy. So if those all came from the same place, why are they different? Well, they're different because different evolutionary pressures came on them. And most people in the martial arts world don't even think about what that is. They just come, it's almost anti-intellectual. They show up, they do the training, yeah. but they don't consider what is going on in training. Is this the right thing, right? So, uh, you know, so then we, we look at the rules of, uh, you know, of, of any martial sport. So, for example, boxing. What's the defense of the double leg takedown? Well, there isn't one, right? Because boxers are not training to fight, right. win fights. They're training to win boxing matches, and that's not the same thing, right? And and the same thing is becoming true of of jujitsu. As if if we're not learning, if we're not training to fight, soon we'll we'll be doing something that's not related to fighting as well, you know. So it's it's no doubt that wrestling still produces good fighters right. because they're tough and they yeah. you know the, the crucible of competition but it's also clear that wrestling is not oriented towards winning fights right you know so that's that's what's happening it's that's becoming that way in jiu-jitsu world and and what it takes for what it takes is like the leaders to be able to like look at what's happening and be able to say is this producing good fighting actions gotcha. you know yeah. and if it and, and, and this is true even of mma imagine the difference between the way pride fights used to go and the and the consolidated rules in the United States now. You know, remember how like uh, Ninja and those guys used to jump over the guard, try to stomp the guy in the head? Well, yeah. kicks to the head were illegal. So 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 that that went away, but that doesn't mean that it's not a good technique. It just means that it's not allowed <laughs> it's not, within yeah. our rules, right? And so and the rules affect that. And you know, I, I, there's lots of examples, but why do people wear four ounce gloves in, in MMA? Well they wear four ounce gloves because it makes it more exciting because they punch more. If nobody was wearing gloves, they wouldn't hit as much, and it would be a lot more boring. And so that's that's what happens in in sports entertainment. Yep. You know, when they change the rules from the UFC to the NBA to NASCAR, they change them to either make it safer or to make it more exciting. Yeah, for the fans. And Absolutely. if and if we're going to really create a martial sport that, that is going to teach people to fight, the leaders have to be no, we're not going to do it that way. In the Army Combatters program, the rules. We used to have a uh, symposium every year after the after the championships, so that all the lead coaches could get together and discuss what had happened as far as technique, okay. and to be able to say, okay, well, people are doing X, Y, or Z that is non-combative, 
And so we need to adjust the rules such that that's no longer a good thing to do. And so that was our rules were slightly modified each year. And then we would have a retrospective. Well, last year we, we changed them because of, to do this, and this is what we've seen this year. And one year is not very long, but, but to, to keep on azimuth, you have to yeah, always be vigilant, right? Yeah. That's right. So what, what, um, if you're looking at a guy that comes in that's always trained from, this would be a weird question probably, from a, from a sport or a competition perspective, what are some of the first tweaks or that you'd have to make with them to get their mindset into the combatives? So mindset? Uh, the first things I would do with somebody who's a, who's a let's assume they're a, very, a good grappler. Yep. Okay, so, so that's the fundamental of fighting in my opinion. Um, it, it, you can make the quickest gains in grappling of, of all the ranges and everything else. But so if I get somebody who's done a lot of that, the first thing I'm going to do is introduce strikes. And they're going to say, okay, so today we're going to roll, except for you can do closed fist punches to the body, and you can do open hand strikes to the head, and, and let's roll. And then I, you know, teach them some techniques. And then after they fail to submit the guy because the setups don't work the same way, I'll yes. say, okay, so here are some setups that are based upon when you're defending strikes or whenever you're striking the guy that you can get him to do, you know. So then that's going to put... It's now it's that you've, you've just taken fundamental jujitsu and made it sort of MMA, right? So the next thing after that I would do is introduce weapons. So we can say, okay, uh, the way you know I I do it is I take a hundred thousand volt stun gun nice. and then and put it in in somebody's pocket in the class when nobody knows who's got it, and then you know, and then two things happen. The first one is the intensity level goes through the roof because nobody wants to get shocked, right? <laughs> and the second thing that happens is everybody learns it's about um, control. So imagine if I'm inside your guard and I have a knife in my pocket and you have the spider guard on me and you're controlling both of my hands, I can't get to it, right? So th then that starts to illuminate, you know, the real the realities of technique. So, you know, how do you know whenever you're fighting somebody, a real fight, if how do you know if they're armed? Well, you don't. You don't. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you have to fight everybody as if they're armed. And if, so if your training isn't reflecting that, well, then it's not combatives, right? So... You can be the best sport of jiu-jitsu guy in the world. I saw I saw an ad on the internet not too long ago where the guy was uh, talking about the the Kali uh, defense to the triangle choke, you know, which of course is to stab the guy a bunch. Was <laughs> <laughs> almost a hundred percent effective, right? Yeah, it's pretty effective. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Uh, yeah, if you if if you have the guy in the triangle choke and he's got a knife on his belt, you have to choke him out quick, or his free hand, the yeah. one that's not inside the triangle, is going to be able to get whatever he's got on his work. Yeah, yeah. So. that's interesting. So uh, I know you have a few academies here in the states. Are you up to four now, or? Uh, yeah, it's really kind of three. Three. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I've I am uh, retreating away from having academies all over. Okay. What I'm trying to do instead is uh, is is just create the culture so that I'm less in control of it. You know, I I think that any teacher, you know, in anything. Um, they're they're better to to be opening people's minds and showing them stuff rather than you know like what I what I try to do is like, like imagine in the jiu-jitsu world you hear it all the time like people don't want their students to go train with other instructors right. well of course this is driven by by monetary interest they don't want their students to teach, go to other instructors because they don't want to lose their money um, but you know in my way of thinking that just shows that you you lack 
you know, faith in yourself, right? right. If you think you think yeah. somebody's going to steal your students away because they got more to offer, well, then you don't want them to go see that they got more to offer. And that's one of the main things we're doing, uh, not only through this podcast, but through the open match that we have with everybody and the relationships we're building throughout. I think we're doing it, starting to do a decent job in, in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, and we're training with each other at all these different academies. Yeah. Because you're exactly right. I mean, if you think that your student's going to go out there and say, wow, this instruction is a thousand times better than yeah. mine. Why am I paying the train with or the, Or even the atmosphere, the friends, the culture, everything. Yeah, you know, it, it, the, the good news about the jiu-jitsu and MMA world is there's almost no schools that I wouldn't recommend somebody go to. You yeah. know, whenever, and, and we're also not actually in competition with each other, right? So, so every one of us, if, if somebody across town brings in a new student or if I bring in a new student, um, then that's just one more person we have in the community, right? Yep. And the way it'll end up playing out is this person might live here for a while, and then they might get a new job He's on the north side of yep. town, and they'll and they'll roll into that guy's academy, and and it'll work the other way, you know. Like I, I have a my academy in Springfield. There's a Taekwondo school literally less than a hundred feet from my door, right? So am I in competition with those people? No, I've never lost a student to them. Nobody has ever like left my door and gone out <laughs> to start doing Taekwondo, but but. They bring students to me all the time, right? So, so uh, that's that's you know, great. I yeah. I would I would uh, you know my approach to the whole thing is like if, if I went to if I was a college professor and and you came into my class and I said I'm your one teacher you're going to be with me forever then you would know I was a crappy teacher because yeah. what I really am there to do is illuminate something and then what I like to think is that students you will go out. Yeah, that's right. What I, I like what I like to tell people is what I'm really doing is giving you a bullshit filter. You should be able to go to any school anywhere in the world and realize what's what's right about it and what's wrong about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, like like this is a fabulous boxing school. Boxing is wonderful, but it doesn't teach you how to defend the double leg. So I have to know that this is the weakness of this school is that they don't have this. Or this is a fabulous MMA school and that's that's great. You know, go train there. It's the closest yep. one. That's what you should do. But you should keep in mind that nobody in there is prepping for what if the guy has a knife in his pocket, yeah. and and uh, you know what what happens when the fight is not one on one, and what happens when, and those are all things that if you if you understand training, then you can, a you can check out you can notice that weakness in the gym, and b you can know how to train for it, how to fill that weakness. You know how do you, you know I mean, when do fights happen? You know. It depends on what your life is like, but Absolutely. fights happen everywhere yeah. from, you know, um, parking lot, parking lot, yeah, right? <laughs> or, 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 you know, or, or in the backseat of a car, you know, like, uh, um, they happen in various ways. And, yeah. and they, and especially when we start talking about training organizations, you know, units that have different missions. So these, you know, imagine if, if, if we were training a, a group and we were truck drivers and that's what we did, right? Well, then, we're thinking the you know Reginald Denny. How do I make sure I don't get pulled out of the yeah. cab? Sort of yeah. combatives, right? It doesn't change the nature of fighting if I'm cha- if I'm training a direct action unit that's going to be you know SWAT team or something that's going to be banging in. Fighting is the same, and and the techniques and the tactics useful will be different, but that doesn't mean the nature of fighting has changed. Yeah, I think I saw an article the day before yesterday. Uh, here, actually, we're in Howard County, where uh, the guy in the back seat kind of wiggled out of his, his handcuffs or his restraints, whatever he did, and then started to attack the police officer from the back seat of the, yeah. of the vehicle. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's like you said, you never know. You know, I've, I've trained, I've trained everybody. You know, the direct action guys is a good example, but I, all the way to like a, you know, people who work at a prison. 
so they might have like somebody barricaded in their cell and yeah. we got to go in with five dudes to get them out. Well, <laughs> so this is an entirely different tactical situation yeah. and the techniques necessary are different and the training methods are similar. In other words, punches are still punches. Your elbow still bends the same way elbows bend and you know there yeah. still can be a still can be a weapon and so it doesn't necessarily change too much about what our generic training will be it just changes the, the you know what we say in the, in the army the TTPs the tactics techniques and procedures Absolutely. but those are not the principles the principles inform them you know so so where can people find you at whether it's uh, Facebook Twitter going to one of your schools yeah i'm i'm on uh, facebook under i have a pseudonym it's matt larson <laughs> so it's, hard I'm, to find. I'm pretty hard to find that, and uh, all my stuff is pretty much on the web. My 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 uh, school's webpage is combatfit.com, um, so that's pretty easy. And then, uh, and also, you know, they should they should know that uh, you know, I'm what I'm trying to do is is the the big measure here is to change the culture within not within the martial arts necessarily. Imagine the, the culture change. That happened when Horian Gracie brought in the UFC, right? That's yeah. a culture change within the martial arts. It's never going to be the same again, right? What I would like to do is that for the country. I would like to to change the culture, and the, and the way you do that, just like we were talking about earlier, it, is we we change the conditions and what people are doing right. and these mindsets. You know, like if we if we could have that same amount of change. That what happened in those days. If we could do that today with jujitsu, if we could, if we could make jujitsu focus on fighting, well, that'd be a big change, right? I mean, because it's it's drifted, you know. And if we could make your average person, your average, I, I remember sitting one day watching one of my daughters play softball, and I realized that I knew everything about what everybody should do on that field at any time. You know, imagine, and almost everybody in America does. Okay, so it's a Top of the third inning, there's a runner on first, yeah. there's two strikes, and uh, and there's a hit to the shortstop. What does the right fielder do? Like, we all know, right? Like, everybody knows this is what that person yeah, does. That's, yeah. So if we if we get it where fighting is a normal thing, we could have that level of knowledge as a, as a nation about what should happen in fights. You know? I mean... I think it confuses a lot of people. Somebody at home is going to be like, where's the right fielder going? That's right, that's right, right, right. They're probably confused right now, but... Yeah. I mean, we should all know. Oh, you're inside the legs. Everybody everybody in America, everybody should know. Oh, you're inside the legs. You need to try to pass a guard. Or, yeah. oh, you know, you... Whatever those lessons are. Every, all of us in the fight world know them, right? The people have. It's incredible that that change that you notice in people when they... Just know a little bit. Yeah. Basic understanding of... of well, I, I remember, you know, uh, there's a uh, famous, uh, I believe it was Joe Rogan's uh, thing, talking oh, about, talk, Rogan, talking, about uh, talking about, you know, <laughs> the regular people have no idea what the skill level of real uh, of some martial artist is. And it's absolutely true. And I used, to, I used to start all my classes, I would imagine, this is the Army in the mid-90s, right? Yeah. Nobody knew anything about, about real fighting. I used to tell them all, I'm going to change your life. I'm going to give you a gift you can never repay me for because the rest of your life you're going to be able to look at any group of men and know that you can whip all of them. <laughs> and it was really true in those days, right? Yeah. It was really true because how much knowledge do you have to have to whip most people? Yeah. Well, you, you don't have to have that much. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can watch a lot of a lot, what people like to do right now is watch, you know, be the YouTube warriors and say, oh, why did you do that? Why did you do this? You yeah. could kick this ass. It's the same as the world. How many people have been watching boxing over the years saying what they should do? Yeah. Um, but the good news about real fighting in these days, especially like from the jujitsu perspective, is it's way easier to learn. You know, like compare learning to box or kickbox with learning jujitsu. Well, 
you can be a one or two stripe white belt for most academies in the world and beat almost everybody in the world. But if you're like that equivalency of boxing, yes. you're going to be in a slugfest and a big dude is going to have an advantage on you. But but the rear naked choke, it works, right? You, yeah. you know, how many white belts know, you know, get a duck under, take the back, choke the guy out. And that that's how fights play out, right? So just one last thing, kind of to wrap us up. I'll give you, I'll give you an option. You, you've traveled a lot of places. You've talked to a lot of people. Uh, I'll give you an option. If you would rather give us one, one of your favorite stories or if you would like to enlighten us with uh, something you've seen in an after-action report or a story that someone's told you after a combat uh, operation and they were actually in a hand-to-hand uh, life-or-death situation. E- either one. It's a toss-up for you. Uh, well, I've done a whole lot of post-action interviews with guys who got in fights. And what I would say is, here's what they all have in common. First off, every fight, every fight on the battlefield is a grappling fight. That doesn't mean ground grappling. It means grabbing, right? Somebody's grabbing somebody else. Um, there's got to be a reason why we didn't shoot them from across the room or they didn't shoot us from across the room. And whatever that reason was, that's the reason why we grabbed them or they grabbed us. So it's always grappling. And the, and the second lesson is, it's never purely grappling. So... There's always strikes involved, and there's almost always weapons involved, right? If I have a ballpoint pen in my shirt pocket, then there's a weapon involved in this fight, right? So real combat training is who's going to control the weapons in the grapple, right? So that's what people really need to be training for if they want to to, uh, be training to fight. And then the last thing I would leave with on on that note is... There are two basic scenarios in real fighting. The scenario one is help is on the way. So that's the scenario that most cops find themselves in. That's the scenario that most soldiers find themselves in, right? And I help is on the way. So if help is on the way, like I'm, I'm a member of some elite SWAT team, and we bang into this room, and I'm fighting this guy. Right. Help is on the way because my partner is in the next room at the most. So what do I have to do in this fight? I have to not lose. That's it, because if I don't lose, my buddy's going to come in and win, right? So the second scenario is help is not on the way, right? If help is not on the way, what do I got to do? Everything is different. Now, now I'm I'm that lone operator, and I'm in you know deepest darkest you know wherever stand, and and I get in an altercation. Help is not on the way. Now, what do I got to do? Because all he's got to do to beat me is hold on to me, right? You know. So if I if if I remain there, I'm not the best martial artist in the world, and I break this guy's, you know, I, I take his back with the barambolo, and then I, and I, you know, whatever. And then what happens? Well, then the crowd has formed, and so real fighting in that circumstance is yeah. is just like an ambush, right? Get off the X. What I've got to do is I've got to dominate this guy positionally such that I can escape. He tackles me and puts me, you know, and, and gets mounted. I got to escape the mount. I got to break his guard open so I can get up and I got to, you know, track and field. Yeah. So that's, those are the, the real no joke truths of fighting. It's going to be grappling. There's going to be weapons. There's going to be strikes. Help is either going to be on the way or it's not. Powerful. Well, I, for all you guys out there listening, I hope, hope you, uh, uh, really enjoy that and, and take some of the, some of the lessons learned or some of the this topics we discussed today and, and put it into practice. Uh, I know you may not run your own academy, but, there are times you can get open mats or find space to train. I'm sure you got buddies and, and implement some of the things that, that Matt hit on today. 
so uh, you can be more comfortable and, and, and be more confident in the skills that you're gaining. Um, Matt, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you it. very much. Good stuff. Awesome. Powerful. Um, hopefully we sit down again in the future. I know we're, we're training regularly, so I'm, I'm doing some of these things every day. Today I was like getting mauled by two dudes. I, I felt helpless. When the guy had my, one guy had my legs, I'm like trying to move around. I was like, in my mind, I'm thinking, just don't give up your back. If the guy starts to go to his back, I'd put my back to the ground, but I couldn't move my hips. My legs were just trying yeah, to two, like, two white belts. They have, yeah. have four arms. <laughs> I felt pretty helpless. So, uh, excellent lesson learned though. And you're just thinking, I was thinking exactly what you're saying. Just survive at that point, mm-hmm. you know? So thank you very much. Um, thank you guys for, uh, tuning in or downloading the episode. Um, uh, see you next week. Thank you. All right. Thanks, brother. Thank you for tuning in, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Work, Play, Obsession, Life, and Jiu-Jitsu, and download our next episode. Also, feel free to visit our blog at workplayobsession.blogspot.com. There you'll find photos, videos, in-depth analysis, and more often than not, weird ramblings from yours truly. Up oh, until next time, keep grinding, train hard.